Welcome to Defragmenting, a podcast of Cairn University, promoting biblical integrity and thoughtful Christianity. Matthew T. Martins is the author of Reforming Criminal Justice, a Christian Proposal, a book in which he hopes to demonstrate from Scripture that justice is most fundamentally an issue of love. Get love right, he says, and you will get justice right. But you will never set the justice system straight without a proper understanding of love. Bringing together his almost 30 years of practicing trial law, along with his theological training, Matt describes and explains the biblical foundations of criminal justice and assesses the history and current practices of the American criminal justice system in light of them. During a visit to Cairns campus, he sat down with Dr. Keith Plummer to discuss these important matters and their implications in the life of a believer. Let's listen to their conversation now. When I reached out to Matthew T. Martins to ask if he'd be willing to join me on defragmenting, I assumed that if he accepted the invitation, we'd be conducting the conversation virtually. But I'm pleased to announce that we're actually in the same room, seated across the table from each other. That's because after he graciously accepted, he also accepted an invitation from the university to talk to students in our criminal justice and politics, philosophy, and history programs, and other interested members of our community about the subject matter of his newly published book, Reforming Criminal Justice, a Christian Proposal, published by Crossway. Matt has been a lawyer for 27 years. He served as a law clerk for a federal court of appeals judge, and then to Chief Justice William H. Rehnquist at the U.S. Supreme Court. He's been both a federal prosecutor and a criminal defense attorney, and is currently a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of one of the world's largest law firms. In addition to his legal training, Matt has formal theological training, earning a master's degree in biblical studies from Dallas Theological Seminary in 2010, and he's currently pursuing a THM in theological ethics at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Matt, I am so glad to finally meet you. Welcome to Cairn University, and welcome to Defragmenting. Thanks for having me here, Keith. It's great to meet you as well in person. Well, before we delve into your book, tell us about what led you to pursue both legal and theological education. I know that you're a pastor's kid. Uh, did you ever consider following in your dad's steps? I don't have any memory of considering pastoral ministry, at least not for any extended period of time. I greatly admired and admire what my uh, my dad's ministry. I grew up not far from here, actually, over in just across the river in New Jersey, where my dad was a pastor for 36 years. Um, I, I was a science and math student. That was where my strength was as a high schooler. And I actually thought I would go to med school and somewhere along the way in college, chose a career that's mostly reading, writing, and public speaking, things that I really didn't like that much, uh, even in college, uh, but I've loved the career as a lawyer. Um, in terms of why I went to seminary, I went as a part-time student. Uh, Dallas had an extension program in Atlanta. I was living in Charlotte at the time. Um, I a, a couple things contributed to it. One, I was a, an adult Bible study teacher, Sunday school teacher, and so I thought that it would help me be a better teacher um, to have more training in that regard. I think a little of it too was my experience being a Christian in the South, having grown up in the Northeast, was a bit of a shock to the system. Um, like nobody's a cultural Christian in New Jersey. Uh, if you're from New Jersey, you get that. You know, it's 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 Jewish, it's Catholic. 
Um, but it's but being an evangelical is not part of the cultural milieu in New Jersey. And then I moved to the South and it very much was, and that was a bit dis disorienting. And so seminary also was an opportunity to think through, not because I had doubts, but just sort of to help clarify my thinking on some issues. My emphasis, I took all my electives in church history, which was enormously helpful. Um, I was actually even having, I was having doubts about being a Baptist living in the South, because I was like, wow, uh, this isn't what I grew up in. Um, very Americana, very um, politically conservative, but not a lot of, I didn't think, theological precision. And that made me wonder whether I was really a Baptist and whether, whether maybe Baptists that I grew up in isn't really what Baptists are and this is Baptist. And so... Um, I actually took a Baptist history class as an extension student at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I went to class the first day and the professor's asking us to all introduce why we're there. It was a week-long format, why we're there. And I said, I'm here for you to convince me that I should stay a Baptist. Uh, and he's like, what do you mean? And I kind of gave him the rigmarole that I just gave you. And he's like, okay. And I remember at the end of the week going up to him and saying, I'm a Baptist. Baptist just quit being Baptist a long time ago. And he said, you got it. Um, so I'm a, I'm a committed Baptist. I'm actually a Southern Baptist living in DC, a Southern Baptist for the first time in my life. Um, uh, but convictionally Baptist, uh, even though the, so, so that's why I went to seminary because the experience helped me. I wanted to clarify some issues and seminary helped me do that. Well, it was evident from reading your book, how your background in church history paid off yeah. in terms of uh, many of the references that you make there. Uh, tell us something about what gave rise to this book. Why did you want to write it? What do you hope it will accomplish in those that read it? It's funny. I, I'm, I sort of describe myself as a reluctant author. Mm. I didn't have aspirations to write a book. I wasn't even sure really how you would do that or how you would get anyone interested in it. But the events maybe beginning in 2014 with the events in Ferguson, Missouri, and then subsequent events that came to the cultural you know, forefront with various police shootings that caused a lot of discussion in our culture, um, caused a lot of discussion in the church I was a part of. Not in a bad way, but my church is very diverse, both ideologically and um, ethnically. And so... There's a lot of discussion about those topics, just like there was in our culture. And initially, one of my pastors, when I was out to dinner, I write about this in the book, encouraged me to write the book, thinking that as a former prosecutor, as a defense lawyer, as someone with theological training, I could be helpful. And I kind of ignored him, mainly because I was busy. And then as, as these events continue to happen, culminating really, I guess, in the summer of 2020 and just the tremendous unrest that caused in our country, another pastor friend, Garrett Kell, sort of pushed me uh, again. He, I, don't even, I don't even know if he knew about the prior engagement I had had with Isaac Adams, um, but Garrett pushed me to write it. And I was like, well, you know, someone's gonna have to introduce me to a publisher and tell me what I need to send to them. And, you know, I'm not even sure I can do this. Uh, I'd never written a book. I mean, I write a lot for my job, but I'm not, a, I'm not generally a writing for mass audiences. Um, Crossway was interested, I guess, somewhat to my surprise. Uh, and then I had to deliver. 
So I signed a contract. This is, uh, this, this is kind of a funny part of it. I signed a contract for 65,000 words, but I, I remember I said to Justin Taylor, it's like, I actually have no idea. I've never done this before. I have no idea what 65,000 words means in terms of how this is going to play out. And he was, he was great. He's like, listen, just keep, as long as it's good, keep writing. Um, which was, which was good that he was flexible because when I delivered my manuscript, it was 140,000 words. Uh, so I, I slightly overshot the mark. Um, uh, but they liked it and they published all of it. Great. Great. And well, we should mention for the sake of those who know the church that you are now at and that you were at then as Capitol Hill Baptist where Mark Dever is the uh, senior pastor and Isaac Adams was on staff at that point. Correct. He's since moved on as senior pastor himself now, a mutual right. friend. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that he, uh, coerced you. Yeah. He's, he's in the, in the acknowledgments to the book, I tell the story about, um, his encouragement and then Garrett's encouragement. Both of them were pastors at some point at Capitol Hill Baptist, and that's how we know them. My family's been members there for 12 years. Yes. Well, in the introduction, you say that as you've watched the natural, national conversation about criminal justice among evangelicals, there are two things that stand out to you as obstacles. Uh, what are those? Well, one is, I think, just a cultural phenomenon, which is that everybody has made themselves a self-ordained expert on everything, right? I mean, you see this on Twitter this week, you know, the people who are experts in infectious diseases during COVID have now become experts in Middle East uh, politics. You know, people s seem to feel no shame in weighing in on every topic. Uh, instead of maybe doing a little reading, <laughs> everybody just starts spouting what they think. And I, I found that to be true in the discussion around criminal justice, that not out of malice, but just because people aren't criminal lawyers. Mm -hmm. And I think that they don't really, as, as a general rule, folks don't really have a sense of how the system actually works. Right. They hear buzzwords like defund the police or uh, mass incarceration or, or other words. And so start repeating them, but don't really know the issues or the data or the, the mechanics of how the system works. And I think, that without that information about how it actually works, it's hard to have an informed discussion. Right. And so the second half of my book is to try to address that shortcoming. It's not a fault in anyone. I don't expect people to be experts in the system, but people, I think, rightly want to engage in the conversation. So I'm trying to provide some basic facts about how various features of the system work so that people can intelligently uh, participate in the conversation. And then the second thing is I think criminal justice is a topic where people bring their ideological predispositions, their political predispositions um, to the conversation. And I hadn't seen a lot of stepping back and saying, what, what, how is a Christian should we think about criminal justice? Like, what are the, the Christian principles that should guide this conversation? So that's the first half of the book where I'm trying to say, here's what I, what I understand scripture to say about how we should think about legal justice. Mm -hmm. And then the second half is, let me tell you how the system works from my decades of experience. And then I kind of, to some degree, leave it to you to say, do those two align? Does the way the system works align with what scripture and Christian ethical thought tells us about what legal justice looks like? Yes. You, concerning that second point, you say that when Christians do try to bring some kind of theological 
reflection to bear. It's in a rather thin way with respect to there is acknowledgement of, well, people are bearers of the image of God, but it doesn't usually go much deeper than than that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, I mean, that is an important principle in all of this. And I do talk about that. Um, but there's a, there's, there's, I think more implications of that perhaps than people have considered. Mm -hmm. And there are other principles beyond being image bearers. So one of the typical ways that I have heard the fact that we're image bearers invoked is that that means we have to treat other people as valuable, as, as inherently valuable, and that that should bear on how we shape a system. That's certainly true. But another sense that I haven't often heard um, mentioned, uh, another sense in which the, Im the image of God bears on the question is that government officials are image bearers. And as image bearers, that means that the justice that they administer must be God's justice, that they are to image his justice. They have authority, if they have authority, to administer criminal justice. It is only because it's God-given authority. It's only because it's authority on loan from God. Uh, that's what Romans 13 tells us, that there's no authority but from God. And all the authorities, the human authorities, are exercising God's authority, literally ministers or the word Paul uses, deacons mm -hmm. of God. And as deacons, ministers, servants of God, as image bearers of God, they must exercise his justice. So that's just another, another implication even of that principle that I haven't heard mentioned as much. And there's many other principles uh, from scripture that I think help us think about criminal justice. Yeah. As I read that section and your explanation of Romans 13 and its implications, I couldn't help thinking about how much Romans 13 has been um, appealed to, whether it be the COVID situation, mm -hmm. usually that. But I had not seen the, the depth in terms of which you went to and some of the implications in terms of what it is that makes governing officials actually just mm -hmm. and this idea of bringing out the uh, the necessity of enacting justice according to God's justice was very very helpful on that point um, you make a claim that will likely take some by surprise you say the criminal justice system is by definition state-sponsored violence and elsewhere you state that a criminal justice system is state-sponsored physical force and that is authorized by Scripture. This is related to yeah. the Romans 13 yeah. passage. What, what do you mean by that, state-sponsored violence or physical force? That description is meant to be just that, a description. It is not meant to be critical. It is meant to be descriptive. And, it, and, I, and it's an important description to say that the government is state-sponsored violence brings home the seriousness, the moral seriousness of the acts that government is taking. But what I mean by that is, in some ways, what Romans 13 says. Paul says that the government is authorized to bear the sword. The sword is an instrument of death. Um, you can look in the Gospels. The, there's the description of how the Romans um, and other officials used the sword at that time to execute people. It was one of the means of execution in that culture. So when Paul invokes that image, 
he's invoking the fact that the government is authorized to kill. And the greater includes the lesser. If they're authorized to kill, they're authorized to impose punishment short of killing. But those are violent acts. That doesn't mean they're wrong, but it does emphasize the seriousness of what they're doing. And, and we, if you think about it, um, you recognize this in our daily lives. Now, we watch TV shows and we see a much more sanitized uh, vision of the criminal justice system. But, but make no mistake, no one gets arrested other than through the application or the threat of physical force, right? It's either stop police, or if you don't stop, we're gonna chase you down and tackle you and wrestle you to the ground and put handcuffs on you. You'll either submit to a threat of force, or if you don't submit, the force will be applied. Same with, with a jail cell. No one goes into a jail cell other than because they submit to a threat of force and so they walk in or they refuse to submit to the threat of force and they're pushed in. The walls of a cell themselves are the application of force, physical restraint on someone. And if you try to escape from that cell, you'll be shot. I mean, there's men and women up in towers with rifles. Um, the justice system operates by physical coercion, physical force. That's inherent in what it is. And Paul recognizes that and recognizes its legitimacy. But um, but it's legitimacy within God-given parameters. In other words, Romans 13 recognizes that government operates by physical force, but it do, it's not an authorization for the government to indiscriminately operate by physical force. Paul writes that the government is to be a terror to evildoers, not a terror to the righteous, mm -hmm. right? So right there, there's a limitation that they can wield this physical violence against evildoers, and he talks about it's done for your good. So it's meant to be done for the good of the community as a terror to evildoers, but it is authorized. It's authorized within constraints because it is a morally serious thing to use physical violence against others. Well, you say that you think that there is uh, a help that can be had from the Christian tradition of just war theory yeah. as an analogy for some of what you just talked about. And as I was reading that, I was wondering, what would someone who takes, say, a pacifist position think about this? And so I wanted to ask you if you, if you could. Well, they think I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I, I was going to ask you to take a stab at steel manning a Christian pacifist position in opposition to what you're saying and then following up with why it is that you think that that is faulty, some of which I think you've already done. but. Yeah. So I'm not an expert in sort of Anabaptist slash pacifistic thought, but as I generally, and I hope I'm fairly characterizing their view, they understand that government plays a legitimate role, but that Christians should not participate in it. So I don't think that they disagree that government operates by violence. I think they very much agree with that, but believe that that activity is contrary to what we as Christians are called to do, to turn the other cheek, to forgive, to not seek vengeance. So the Sermon on the Mount, Romans 12. Um, and so they understand government to play a legitimate role, but not for Christians to play a role in it. Um, I, I think that's a mistaken view. Um, and I think it's a mistaken view because of what Romans 13 says about who government ministers are, that they are servants of God. Um, I don't think, I think the implication there 
when it talks about them being ministers of God, carrying out his authority um, for the good of the community, to be a terror to evildoers, I, I understand that to be a description of honorable conduct um, that would not be sinful for Christians to participate in. But I, so I think the distinction is that is not about what government does, but about whether Christians can participate in it. And I think that's the Anabaptist pacifistic tradition. I'm, I'm Augustinian in many respects, and Augustine is, and along with Ambrose, are probably the Christian originators of just war theory. Just war theory tries to answer the question, when can a nation rightly conduct war? When can a nation justly use lethal military force? There's both a when question, when is that justified? And in those instances when it's justified, how can it justly be conducted? There's a when and a how question in just war theory. And I think that the, the, the there's an analogy there to criminal justice. There it, in criminal justice, it's judicial force rather than military force, but it's still state-sponsored force. And we have to answer the same questions. When is that morally justified? And in those instances when it's morally justified, how must it justly be employed? So I think it's the same questions on a, a less severe scale, but I think the difference between war and Criminal justice is a difference in degree, not a difference in kind. It's ultimately a question of when can physical force be used by a Christian? When can it justly be used by a Christian? When can it justly be used by government? And in those instances when it can be justly used, how must it be used in order to be used justly? That's helpful. Thank you. After I read your book, I, I mentioned to some people in describing it, I said, I, not only did I get a, an education in criminal the criminal justice system, but I came away with a lot more reflection on the nature of Christian love and the relationship of love and justice that plays a foundational role in the, the book. And I wanted to ask you, what is the relationship as you see it between the, the command to love, the obligation to love, and justice? Well, first of all, I'm glad that that was your takeaway because it was my takeaway from writing it. Hmm. Uh, I really spent a year, a year and a half reflecting on, reading widely on what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And I would just say to your listeners, from my experience, there's probably nothing better you could do for yourself as a Christian than just spend a year thinking about that question, reading everything you can find. Because, because this is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. Not to become a Christian, but to what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. Over and over, eight times in scripture, we're told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. It's repeated multiple times in the gospels. It's repeated in Romans, in Romans 13 actually which is very interesting. It appears, appears in Galatians, it appears in James. Uh, it seems important. And, and Christian ethicists have really recognized it as the foundation of what it means to live a, a, an ethical life as a Christian. And so I really did try to spend a year thinking about 
what does that mean to love my neighbor as myself? What's bound up in that idea? Like try to spin that out and particularly to spin it out in the context of a justice system. What's interesting is that the first appearance of that phrase in scripture is in Leviticus 19, where in verse 15, Moses begins, do no injustice in court. And then goes on to give some other commands and says, but love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, that command to love our neighbors as ourselves was originally rooted in a legal context. Now it has application far beyond that, uh, but that it has application to that because that's where it began. And so I tried to, I tr I tried to think about what does, how does that play out in a criminal justice system? Because the challenge in a justice system is you have two neighbors who are at odds, right? You have a criminally victimized who, who I have an obligation to love, but I have a criminally accused or maybe even a criminally convicted ultimately who I have an obligation to love. I have a culture who's affected by that conflict between the criminally victimized and the criminally accused. I have an obligation to love that culture, that, that society of people. And, and it seems like they're all at odds with one another. So, so our, I think our natural tendency is to want to pick a side, mm -hmm. to say, well, you know, that person's a wrongdoer and I, I feel a great deal of sympathy for this crime victim. And so I'm going to pick a side. I'm going to love the victim. And, and we should love the victims. We, we, we do need to have a justice system that protects victims, protects the vulnerable, uh, both before they're victimized to protect them from being victimized and after they're victimized. Uh, and uh, I think that comes easier for us, sure. just naturally, as it, probably as it should in some ways. Uh, but our command isn't only to love those it's easy to love. In fact, Jesus says, you know, love your enemies, you know, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. That, that this, the story in Luke 10 of the Good Samaritan, Jesus emphasizes that point by the way he tells the story. He crosses the most stark ethnic boundary, a hostile, a great deal of hostility uh, across that ethnic division of Jews and Samaritans in his day to make the point that our obligation to love is not merely to those who it's natural in our culture to love. Um, but just the opposite, it extends across lines of hostility um, to love those who are in our culture unlovely. And, and so I think that translated to the criminal justice system is a reminder that even those not like us, those who we can't envision ourselves being, someone criminally accused or criminally convicted, our obligation to love extends to them. Another, though, challenge is I think people view justice and love as at conflict. Yeah. And what I concluded as I spent a year thinking about this is that's not true. And the reason I know it's not true is because God is just and God is love. And, and I say is, not does. I mean, yes, God does just things, but God does just things because God is just. In other words, he embodies justice. 
and, and God does loving things, but he does loving things because he is love, Scripture tells us. He embodies love. So if God is love and God is justice, that means it's not just that he does some loving things and he does some just things and you, you wrap it all together and you have a just and loving God. No, everything God does is just and everything he does is loving. So we call it, as theologians, divine simplicity. That God doesn't have parts. God is in his entire being just and is in, entire, in his entire being love. And so that helped me realize that love and justice are actually not in conflict. Um, and so I try to spin out in my book why I don't think they're in conflict and how I think they intersect. But I think recognizing that they both are part of God's character helps us see right from the beginning that they aren't in conflict because God is not in conflict with himself. Good. Yeah, I was thinking about the the implications of, as you mentioned, the doctrine of simplicity, which at first might sound to some as something esoteric and abstract and uh, academic, but you're bringing out how this really has very practical consequences for how we think about the relationship between love and justice. So we know from our doctrine of God, that even though we might struggle with how it is they do relate, they are not in conflict. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That The fact that I can start with, they can be reconciled. Mm -hmm. Now, in my finitude, in my limitedness as a human, I may struggle to fully reconcile them, but I can trust that they will, that they can be reconciled and one day they will be fully reconciled. So, so you say, okay, well that's, how do they reconcile? In, a, in short, justice is giving to every man his due. This has been the Christian definition of justice since Augustine, he sort of coined that phrase, giving to every man his due, giving to every man what he's owed. And what scripture tells us is that our, what, what our neighbors are due, what they are owed, is my love. Yeah. That is That was a radical discovery for me in writing this book. Because if you're like me, you think of love as your generosity, right? We, we use the word charity sort of interchangeably with love, right? Love is my charity towards you. It's my discretionary conferral on you. I have the option to love you or not love you. And you know, if you're lucky, you'll get my love. And that is not what scripture teaches. I mean, you see it in Romans 13, owe no man anything, Romans 13, eight, but your continuing obligation to love. Paul, in the context of talking about government, reminds us that love is our obligation. You have a claim on my love. It's not like I can, I can hand it out with discretion. You're entitled to demand it. And so if I have to, if justice is giving everyone their due, and what you are due is my love, then justice is giving to everyone my love. And love, just to close the loop, is seeking and willing the good of another as an end in itself. I seek your good, I will your good, I seek your good, not so I can get something out of it, but as an end in itself, because you're an image bearer and seeking your good is a good, mm -hmm. even if I get nothing out of it. So justice is giving every man his due. What you are due is my love. 
and loving you is seeking and willing the good, your good as an end in itself. Yeah, you, um, you say that we might even call it their civil right, my yeah. neighbor's civil right. Yeah. You have a right to my love. Yes. And, and that, like I said, was a radical, like the moment the light bulb turned on and like, wow, like people are owed my love. Like I have a responsibility to love all my neighbors. Like that, this, again, this is just an example of how you spend a year thinking about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, what Jesus was getting at there. That was one of my discoveries. I have an obligation to love you. Well, you start off the book uh, laying out a, a, an ethic of, of justice, a Christian ethic of justice. And um, you, you have a, a chapter. And when I saw the title, I said, he's really going to go there. Um, <laughs> chapter the, <laughs> one? Is that one? That's not the one? Yes. Uh, the, the chapter on social justice and the gospel. Yeah. And I figured th I'd start out slow. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I, I've said about the book to others, I said, you know, there's something in here to ruffle the feathers of everyone. So, um, but you obviously chose that to, to use that term uh, for a reason. And you probably knew that it was going to uh, raise hackles and, yeah. and some because social justice has so many connotations and it is used in such a weaponized way by some. It's used as a defense by others. Um, what? What do you mean by social justice? Why is it that you think that for many Christians, the term is so um, offensive? Yeah. And uh, how does that relate to criminal justice? So I think when I handed in my book proposal, I didn't have that chapter in there when I, when I handed in the initial proposal to Crossway. And I realized as I started writing that I was jumping into the argument, skipping one step which was uh, rooting what I was saying in the gospel. And by that I mean, I, didn't, I, don't, I don't really view me, myself as growing up in sort of reformed world, as I called it. And though I very much live in that world now, um, being a Capitol Hill Baptist, mm -hmm. but, but I, didn't, I didn't grow up in reformed world. And one observation I have had about being in reformed world um, for the last 12 years is that I think that there's a tendency in reformed world to reduce the gospel to the doctrine of justification. And that is not in fact historical reform teaching. Historical reform teaching, Calvin is very clear on this, that there's a double grace of the gospel. And the double grace is justification and sanctification, that we are declared just by God at the moment of conversion. And we are made just through the Spirit's sanctification. And that that sanctification makes us live a different type of life. It makes us live ethically. Mm -hmm. It makes us live ethically in our social interactions with one another. So when I use the term social justice, I recognize that that's sort of a loaded term. It's become synonymous with progressive politics. I'm not using it in that sense. I, I try to explain, I am using social justice to capture the notion that we must be just, not only in our one-on-one -on -one interactions with others, but also in how we work together to structure a society. 
So let me give an example of that. Um, we can have, uh, I could do you wrong by individually stealing from you. I would, I would call that an individual injustice. Um, I could also do you wrong by, tr by working through the political process to try to design the laws such that they would not punish me for stealing from you. That's what I'm calling a social injustice or a structural injustice, efforts to design a society in a way through the laws that are unjust. Mm -hmm. So you say, well, no one would actually do that. Well, we actually did it as a nation. It was, it was people owned slaves. That was an individual injustice by the slave owner toward the slave. But we also had a social injustice. We designed laws that facilitated that individual just injustice. So we had a socially unjust system. And so what I'm saying is that the gospel includes our sanctification and our sanctification includes not only our individual acts of justice toward one another, but also our collective organizing of society to be more just. And so when I talk about social justice, I'm getting at that that aspect of living a Christian life, living an ethical life that is seeking to create a more just social structure. Um, I'm not talking about progressive politics. I'm talking about organizing society in a way that is just as God de defines justice. And so to the person who would hear that and say, which this is commonly uh, said, one of the things I really appreciated about the book is you um, take on a number of cliches that have been uh, circulating amongst evangelicals. To the person who says, well, it's unnecessary to modify justice by social because all justice is social, what would you say? I would say that I'm, that is true in a sense, that all of my justice giving to someone their due necessarily implies an another someone. But I'm trying to distinguish between I could do you wrong in one-on-one -on -one versus more, less directly, more indirectly, I could organize society so that society is doing you wrong. Mm -hmm. And I wanna recognize that second type of injustice, which is that the ways we choose to organize society are also aspects of justice. Okay, that's helpful. Well, in, in the first part of the book, you uh, identify uh, what you call pillars of biblical justice, and uh, we won't obviously have the time to discuss all of them, but um, you identify them are as accuracy, due process, accountability, impartiality, and proportionality. And I just wanted to um, pick maybe one or two of those, some of the things that you bring out. Um, one of the things that you bring out, and this is going to kind of be a bridge into the second half in which you do a history of the American criminal justice system and then evaluate it by those pillars on some of uh, the elements that are ingredients to it. But these are some statistics that you included in the chapter on accountability. Since 1989, 3,250 men and women across the U.S. have been exonerated after being convicted and collectively serving more than 28,100 years in prison for crimes they did not commit. From 2014 to, 2014 to 2022, an average of 170 men and women were exonerated each year, about three per week, 
The average exoneree lost nearly nine years in prison before his or her innocence was uncovered. Some of these individuals actually confessed to the accusations brought against them. And when someone hears that, the question that inevitably comes to mind is, how could it possibly be that anyone would confess to something that they did not do? So help us understand that. That's an excellent question, isn't it? Yes. Um, It makes you question how bad could a system be? So let let me just try to make sure people understand the seriousness of what I'm saying there. So in August of 1989, that's marked as the date that is the advent of forensic DNA technology, meaning the first time in which DNA technology was used as a means for establishing guilt or innocence in an American court. Uh, In the first 250 exonerations by DNA after August of 1989, 16 were people who had pled guilty. We know that 16 people pled guilty to crimes that to a scientific certainty, we know they didn't commit. Um, of the, th- as you said, the 30, you know, over, now over 3,300 exonerations since 1989, not all of them DNA, 24% were people who pled guilty. So, so we know this happens. And it does raise a very good question about why does that happen? Uh, I think that there's a number of answers to that. I don't think there's any one simple answer. But one of the answers, and perhaps the most prominent answer, is that the system is designed to pressure you to plead guilty once you're charged. And the only reason you would be comfortable with a system that pressures everyone charged to plead is if you had 100% confidence in the prosecutor's charging decisions. Now, as a Christian and as an Augustinian Christian, I have no such confidence in human capability. Um, But that is how the system works. The prosecutors, I'm not even doubting their good faith in charging people they believe are guilty. What I'm doubting is their infallibility. But once they charge, they then have tools that they uniformly bring to bear to pressure everyone they've charged to plead guilty. And what I think people don't understand is that 95, somewhere around 94 to 97%, 95 is often used as the percentage estimate, 90, let's say 95% of people charged with crimes plead guilty pursuant to plea bargains. 95%. So our system is not one of trials. It's one of plea bargains. But you would have to, and the way those plea bargains are achieved is through pressure. You have a constitutional right to a trial. So, so why are people at a rate of 95% giving up their right to a trial? Because the system places enormous pressure of various types on people to plead guilty. And so I try to explain in the book what that pressure looks like, but it is enormous pressure. Hmm. And so the, the system places this pressure on people to plead with threats of longer sentences if they don't plead, with incarceration by denial of bail before they're even convicted, um, 
by the all the knock-on effects of that denial of bail and pretrial incarceration, loss of job, loss of family, loss of kids, maybe to the to the social justice system, um, uh, risk of sexual assault while you're in jail prior to trial, the fact that we don't provide enough public defenders for the poor, who are uh, most of the people charged in the justice system, and so lengthy periods of time before their lawyer can come see them. The fact that we don't honor the speedy trial right that's guaranteed by the Constitution, and people often wait six, seven, eight years, years in jail prior to trial, um, having been convicted of nothing. All of that coalesces to put enormous pressure on people to plead guilty. And we know the outcome of a system designed that way, which is that people plead guilty to crimes they did not commit. Yeah, that was an astounding fact of how long people could be imprisoned prior to sentencing. Prior Wait, to trial. But prior to trial, yeah. yeah. Prior Before to trial. they've been convicted of anything. I mean, I provide a lot of data on this uh, from around the country that even though the Constitution guarantees you a right to speedy trial, uh, the reality is people are often incarcerated for years waiting for trial. I mean, there's a man, he may, I haven't looked within the last few weeks, but there's a man in Georgia that's it's gotten a lot of publicity. He's been in jail for a decade waiting for trial. Been convicted of nothing. He spent a decade in prison. And all of that, um, in ways that I explain in the book, puts pressure on people to plead. Yes. And as I said, we know the outcome of that, which is that people end up pleading guilty to stuff they did not do. Things that we know is a scientific certainty they didn't do because they're subsequently exonerated by DNA. Well, just to give listeners a, an idea of what else you um, include in that second portion of the book, in addition to a chapter on plea bargaining, there are chapters on jury selection, judges, assistance of counsel, witnesses, sentencing, the death penalty, um, and a, a concluding chapter on what the reader can do. But uh, there are two things that I want to talk about before we close. One is um, on all of these areas, as you're looking historically and even currently, you, you say in the beginning of the book that um, though this isn't a book about race, you are not going to shy away from how race has played into the history and even the present of the criminal justice system. Um, we could do an episode just on that, I'm sure. And there are some really alarming things that yeah. you include. But I just want to give you the opportunity to say whatever you would like about that, not only historically, but also at present. So as, I, as you said, I, I try to make clear I'm not writing a book about race. This is not another um, book about white evangelicals and the way they failed African-Americans. Other people have written that book. Other people are more expert to write that book. But you, at the same time, you cannot write a book about criminal justice and ignore the issue of race. And so there's really two or three areas uh, in which I flag the way race has played a nefarious role. One is in the discussion of history. So I have a I have a lot of people say, okay, the criminal justice system might have been bad, um, but 
you know, lots of, lot, lot has changed since 1965, you know, a lot has changed in this country since the civil rights movement. And that is true. But I want folks to recognize that the system has historically been used, has been weaponized to abuse people for racial reasons. That is the reality of our country. And, and that sort of highlights two things. One, if that has changed, and I, and I believe it has to some degree, that change has been largely in my lifetime. This is not ancient history. Uh, number two, um, the fact that it could be abused in that way highlights the fact that it can be abused that way. And we should be sensitive to the fact that a system that could be used and should be used for great good has been used for great evil. And I try to explain how when people use the phrase with regard to the Civil War, the North won the war and the South won the peace, meaning that the South ultimately prevailed in beating Reconstruction and undoing many of the advances obtained by the Civil War, that the way the South won the peace was largely through the misuse of the criminal justice system. And I try to explain that history uh, in, in the book to, so that people understand the way the system was and thus can be manipulated to evil ends. So, so I, I talk about that. I don't shy away from that history. I want people to understand that history. I think it's important to understand how we got to where we are. Number two, um, when I talk about jury selection, there has been and there remains a, an egregious effort to exclude African-Americans from juries on the basis of race. Um, that, is a, that, has, that is our history. I talk about that history in the history chapter, but it is also our present. Um, it is a per, though the Supreme Court has repeatedly declared unconstitutional various ways in which prosecutors seek to exclude African Americans from juries on the basis of race. It persists to this day as a common practice, and and I think that's again important to recognize so that we can speak against that evil. It's done to make it easier to convict blacks for crimes and harder to convict whites for crimes against African-Americans. And that has been the history, that is the present. Um, and then thirdly, race has infected the use of the death penalty. Um, interestingly, I think most people think that race um, the race of the defendant is what drives the application of the death penalty. In fact, what the evidence shows, the statistical studies that have been done, is that even controlling for hundreds of other variables, what we know is that race, the race of the victim, drives the application of the death penalty. Meaning, you are less likely to be sentenced to death for killing a black person than for killing a white person. We are through our system making an evil statement about the relative value of human life based on race. So just one example I give of this. In September of 1991, Donald Gaskins was executed by the state of South Carolina. Donald Gaskins had been a serial killer. 
But and his execution in September of 1991 gained a lot of nationwide press, but not because he was a serial killer, but because he was the first person in 47 years who was a white person executed for killing a black person. 47 years. The last such execution was in 1944. 1,700 executions in that intervening 47 years. Not a single one of a white person for killing a black person. That, and statistical studies have confirmed just what that historical example demonstrates, which is that we, our system as a whole treats black lives as less worthy of protection. And that is, a, that is an evil, that is partiality to use the Christian word. Um, it is an affront to God and we should oppose that as Christians. We should speak against that. We should seek to change that. Um, we should be appalled by that. We should be appalled that 150 some years after the Civil War, our country still devalues African-American lives in that way. Yeah, there were some really disturbing details and statistics that you included there. On the point of the death penalty, you say that that is the most significant moral issue on which you've changed your mind. And um, recently, you had, you had sent out a tweet, and I won't ask you to expound on this to uh, any great length, but you had said, I'm a theologically conservative Christian who opposes the death penalty as practiced in the U.S. because I'm a theologically conservative Christian. I don't know how anyone familiar with the facts could reach a different view. Yeah, I, I didn't state that strongly, did I? <laughs> you, you did. I'm going to leave it to uh, readers or listeners to follow through with what you mean by that. But that is uh, something that is somewhat surprising. And I just want to say that you're, you make it clear that your objection is not on the basis of the death penalty in principle. Yeah but on how it is practiced and evaluating that by the pillars of justice. Yeah. Yeah. So I am a theologically conservative Christian. I oppose the death penalty as practiced in the United States. I oppose the death penalty as practiced in the United States because I'm a theologically conservative Christian, and I do not believe there's room for debate on that. Yes. So you correctly stated my view. Um, So why do I say that? I do not categorically oppose the death penalty. As I said, Romans 13 speaks of the government bearing the sword. The sword is an instrument of death. I believe God has authorized government to take lives, whether in war or through the criminal justice system. Um, If it's done, and this is the important point, under certain conditions. So there's the when, right? Going back to just war and just criminal justice, the when and the how. It's not an indiscriminate authorization to take life. And, and even in, for those crimes for which it's authorized, it must be done in certain ways in order to be just. There, there's a how and a when. And so while I can accept as a theoretical matter that government is morally authorized by God to carry out uh, a death sentence, it is only authorized to do so under certain conditions, including with accuracy, um, God hates, uh, it's an abomination to both acquit the guilty and convict the innocent, scripture tells us. Um, Paul says that you can bear the sword against evildoers. Impliedly, 
you cannot bear the sword against non-evildoers. So there's a, there's a principle there of accuracy. And, um, and we know that God's justice is impartial. So I've already talked about the, the way in which race infects the death penalty of the United States. But let's talk about accuracy for a second. Uh, in Since the modern death penalty, so people, when they speak of the modern death penalty, we're talking about in 1972, in Furman versus Georgia, the Supreme Court struck down the death penalty as unconstitutional. States responded by making changes to their death penalty laws, and that was affirmed by the Supreme Court in a case called Gregg versus Georgia a few years later. So when we talk about the death penalty, the modern death penalty, we're talking about after Furman, so after 1972. So since Furman, about 8,900 and some people in the United States have been sentenced to death. Um, 194 were innocent. 194 did not commit the crime for which they were sentenced to death. So that's about 2.2%. Now, thankfully, those 194 were not sentenced to death. We caught those beforehand. Um, but those are the ones we caught. In other words, we know the system 2.2% of the time sentences people to death who did not commit the crime. A couple of weeks ago, I was out in California speaking, and I said to the students I was speaking to, I said, when I got on the plane last night in Washington National Airport, I got on that plane believing with near 100% certainty that we would land in Los Angeles. If, if they had come on the public address system, public address system in Washington National Airport and said, you know, we're boarding now, we should advise you that this plane crashes 2.2% uh, of the time, um, I would not have boarded that plane. 2.2% of the time is not sufficient accuracy when my life is at stake. And yet we put our fellow citizens on that plane. We put 8,900 of them on that plane, knowing it would crash 2.2% of the time. Um, I don't think that's morally permissible. The 2.2% is what we know. There's been statistical modeling by the National Academy of Sciences saying if it takes, on average, 15 years for an exoneration to occur in a capital case, and we can look at how long people have been on death row and how many have yet hit that 15-year average mark, the modeling shows that somewhere north of 4%, one out of every 25 people we sentence to death is innocent. Um, uh, I don't believe that that is morally acceptable to God. I think that is bearing the sword against uh, non-evildoers. And that is not, if I go back to where I started, whatever authority we have is only authority God delegated. And he did not delegate to us the authority to bring physical coercive force up to death against people who are innocent um, at that rate. And so, and so that's why I say I am against the death penalty as practiced in the United States because I am a theologically conservative Christian. And I do not believe that is a debatable point. I do not believe that you can morally hold the view that an error rate that high is uh, acceptable to God. On that point, someone might be thinking, what would be an acceptable error rate barring infallibility? Yeah. So here, here's what I would say to that. God has not 
conferred on us the authority or the obligation to address all crime. So let me just give an example of that from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you could not criminally punish someone except on the testimony of two witnesses. What that means is that in Old Testament Israel, God had not conferred on human authority, on human government, the authority to punish one witness crimes. God knew that some crimes would go unvindicated by human government. But he promised that none of it would go unvindicated by him. And I think that that, that our willingness to accept error rates that high is a lack of trust in God. It's an insistence that we will get as many murderers as we can, a, a righteous desire, but at the expense of the innocent, not a righteous desire. Instead of trusting that while we might not vindicate all the wrongs, God will in the end. In fact, that's what we confess as Christians on Sundays, as Christians have for thousands of years, when we recite things like the creed, when we say we believe that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Our hope is that there is, in fact, an ultimate justice when our fallible justice system will fail. And so the, I think what Scripture is conveying to us is that there's a danger that in our right desire for justice, we can commit more injustice when we seek to do more than God has delegated to us to do. And so what I'm saying is we should bear the sword recognizing the moral seriousness of what we're doing and the constraints that God has put on us when it comes to doing it, recognizing that some things we will have to trust to him. Well, you have been very generous with your time and I really appreciate it. I know that you wrote the book, as you said, because you wanted to kind of work against the tendency amongst Christians to lose sight of the fact that God redeems us in order to make us people who live justly and to encourage Christians to think about how it is that we can be part of the ordering of a society that is more just with respect to criminal justice. And um, your concluding chapter is called What Can You Do?, in which you provide readers with just a various ways that they can be part of that. And I wanted to just wrap up our time um, quoting uh, a poem that you include there by Edward Everett Hale that reads, I am only one, but still I am one. I can't do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something I can do. And I am really grateful for what you've put together in the book, because I think that people coming away um, can come away with things that they can do. And uh, so I'm really, really grateful for the time that you put into the research, the writing, and uh, talking about the book. So the book, again, is Reformed, Reforming Criminal Justice, a Christian Proposal by Matthew T. Martins, published by Crossway. For you who listen, thank you for giving us your time and attention. If you find conversations like this one 
profitable. Would you please do us a favor by liking, subscribing, rating, and or sharing the podcast with others? By doing that, you can help us let others know about defragmenting. Finally, if you'd like to learn about the undergraduate and graduate programs available at Cairn University, including, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, programs in criminal justice and politics, philosophy and history, you can find information at cairn.edu. Thanks again for listening. Matt, thank you again for being our guest. Thank you for having me. It's been great. And I hope that you who are listening will join us next time.